Well, hey, come on back and uh, let's settle our hearts and uh, get ready. No one listens to me, but that's okay. <laughs> it's no problem. You guys love each other and that's cool. And we're going to uh, explore now, uh, I think this is the second week, uh, the second part of Luke chapter 12 as we make our way through the Bible. What we're convicted about here is that you and I and we should participate in corporate study of the Bible, uh, what the Bible calls the whole counsel of God. Uh, because let's just be honest, folks, the person that stands back here is human. Did you know that? And if we were left to ourselves to just pick and choose from the Bible, guess what we would tend to do? Cover the comfortable stuff. But if we go through the entire Bible, it just gives us no choice. We got to talk about it all. And I think that the Lord wants us to do that, is to make sure we get the whole counsel of God so we'll all be healthy, whole, and happy in the Word, blessed in the Word, and whole. So that's what we're doing. We're moving through Luke chapter 12. It's the universal gospel. It's the gospel that takes that idea that people are exclusive and have God's love exclusively and that everybody else is excluded. Like, come to our church because we have the corner on God's love and we are the only ones that do it right. And, 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 and oh, by the way, we live on this side of the track or that side of the track and so we must be highly favored and you're not. Or we were born into this kind of family or this race, so we're, you know how that goes on in the world. See, this gospel obliterates all of that. This is the universal gospel. It doesn't matter what we look like, where we come from, what privileges we have or not have. It doesn't matter. We're all equal in Jesus Christ. And Luke, a doctor, a physician, a real doctor, who also, by the way, was a really educated, trained man who did history. Just read Luke chapter 1. He did history on this whole thing that happened with Jesus, and he put it down in this gospel, and he wants you and I to know that we're all welcome in Christ. And we're in a section of Luke that many of the rabbis called stringing of pearls. At first glance, it kind of looks like these things don't go together. It's just kind of like topics that you need to know, like bullet points, and so he jumps from one to the other. But there is sort of a flow of this if you can piece it together. In the last couple weeks, we've been talking about self-righteousness, that outward show of religion that has nothing to do with what's in the heart. Jesus is concerned about your heart, not the externals. I can put on a tie and come in here and look all pious and talk in King James Version language and pray elegant prayers and be so far from God and fooling everybody else. And last week, Jesus called that kind of living as hypocritical living. In other words, there's a mask you play in public, but really what's going on is something different. He said it's a sin and don't be hypocritical. Be authentic. Take off the mask and be real in Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Beware of hypocrisy, he tells us 
at the beginning of chapter 12. Beware of that mask wearing. And he says the way to combat mask wearing, being a hypocrite, saying one thing outwardly, but thinking another thing inwardly, like being concerned about everybody else's sin, like some of those televangelists in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, who were railing on sin and fire and brimstone, and we all came to find out it was just outward. And Lord, help me and us, because I could fall into that too, so pray for us. But you know what I'm saying? And we all got turned off by it because all these people were on TV and they're just railing and railing and railing. And it turns out their life was in the toilet. And that's not something to laugh and joke about. That's sad, man. And Jesus said the way to combat hypocrisy is you fear God and not man. Fear God. There's two kinds of fear in the Bible. One is fearing man. Wanting to be liked all the time. The Bible does say, as much as it's up to you, live in peace with all men. Of course, we're to be kind and nice, and it does feel good to be liked. But when push comes to shove, we're to fear God and do what we do because it's approved by God and not for man. And if you succumb to the fear of men, listen, it's not if you're going to be a hypocrite. You are going to be a hypocrite. And so he says, fear God, uh, not men. And in fact, he tells us in the New Testament, isn't this beautiful, perfect love, which we find at the cross, the sacrificial, self-giving, choosing, sweet, uh, satisfying love that you find at the cross casts out fear, the bad kind of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. The word in the Greek is phobia. It casts out our anxieties and our phobias. He says the way to combat hypocrisy is to fear God, not men, and to, be a, and to confess Christ before men. Does that mean I always have to just hit it out of the ballpark when somebody's at work and I just, I got the four spiritual laws or the Roman road and I just do it. And everything's just great and he'll confess me in heaven. Well, yes and no. I mean, Peter denied the Lord three, you know, you know this, at the most critical time, Peter denied the Lord and the Lord restored him. So what does confess Christ before men? It means living a life of Christianity openly. It's not that you make mistakes, don't make mistakes. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't take the opportunity and you say, man, Lord, I'm so sorry. I didn't forgive me. Next time, Lord, help me and I'll Help me not to fear uh, men and fear God and just to speak up and to talk. And he says, that's the way to combat hypocrisy. You know, it's real great. This is a great strategy. If you're going to school, if you're at a new college, if you're at a new job, <laughs> just make sure they know early that you're a Christian. Because if you get into that place where you just kind of go with the flow for a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years, it's going to be hard to pull yourself out of that. But, you know, you come with your coffee mug that says, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, and you just stick it right there. You don't, you don't have to say anything to anybody. You just put it right there. Or, or when you're talking to people at lunch at the new work or the new job, and they say, oh, man, my son, he's into this, you say, man, I will pray for him. And in fact, 
if it's all, you know, off time, off duty, your first ministry is to do a great job at your work, work hard. But if it's at a time when you think it's appropriate, pray with them right there. Don't say, I'll pray for him later. If you can, pray for them. Guess what they'll know immediately? You've confessed Christ. Will you make mistakes? Sure, Peter did. By the power of the Holy Spirit, will you get up and walk again? Yeah, that's confessing men, Christ before men. Just listen, don't combat the darkness. If you came into this room at night, it, by the way, it, it is kind of weird in here at night, and then the, the, uh, the radiators have been rattling so bad lately, it's like, what is going on? So if you come in here at night, you know what you would do? You wouldn't karate chop the darkness. You would just simply go over to the light switch and go pop, and you'd combat the darkness. You defeated it, and that's what you do in your life. You just fill yourself up with the light and life of Jesus Christ so that the darkness has no room. And now, flowing out of you will be Christ to your coworkers. You're going to be the best worker at your place. They're going to depend on you. You'll be responsible. That's a ministry. Uh, you'll be reflecting Christ to do everything is unto him. You'll, you know, take the opportunity to pray for people. Put them on your prayer list. Ask the Lord for opportunities, but work hard. And all of that will be flowing out of your life. And you'll read this, confess Christ before men in a way different way. Your life will be flowing with Jesus. And people will notice. Some of them aren't going to like it but they'll notice. And you've made your stand early. Now, after that, here's where we start. Jesus says, I got to tell you something else for you to be aware of. Because he's talking to his disciples, and you have to remember, at this point in the gospel, the religious leaders are really mad at Jesus, and there's big crowds who only want to see him do signs and don't really care about the word of God, just want the stuff that God gives. Don't really want to be saved by God, but want to be served by God. That speaks of American Christianity right there. And in the midst of that, he says, hey, you guys, watch it. Hey, disciples, watch it. Now he's speaking to us, and he's saying, watch it. You don't want to be a hypocrite. You want to be authentic. Fear God. Don't fear man. And beware of something. Materialism. You say, oh, I don't, I don't have a problem with materialism. Hmm. Read this. Then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, that's funny, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's just me. All right. Man, who made me a judge and an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Are you catching that? Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this, will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, think, mark that, soul, <laughs> that's funny, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, check this out. Now listen, he's just described the American dream. And Jesus says here in the parable to the guy who builds the barns and pulls them down and builds bigger so he can store his stuff, you're a fool. Now Jesus said it, I didn't say it. 
This night, your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? In other words, you're going to die. Somebody else is going to get all this stuff. What are you doing? So is he who lays up treasures for himself. So is he what? So is he a fool who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Ooh, not rich towards God, which means we have to be or we should be rich towards God. So let's think about this. Apparently, people in the world have a real misplaced sense of what they should treasure. And Jesus gets on this kick about, and it's so beautiful, about hypocrisy and how to be close to him and fearing God and not fearing man. This is so typical of humanity. And he's given this impassioned plea about how to avoid fear of men. I mean, it's just amazing. And people, some people in the crowd are hanging on his very word. But another person, apparently a younger brother, not an older brother, stops him in mid-sentence and says, hey, we got an inheritance dispute, and we want you to judge it. I mean, you know, if it was me, I'd be like, dude, what are you talking about? I've just, we just talked about all this great stuff, and you're asking me about an inheritance dispute? You selfish. And Jesus just does it so perfectly. He said to me, man... Who made me a judge and an orbiter over you? And he said to them, take heed. Now, he's saying here, listen, I'm not getting involved in these things of the world. Yes, there's justice in the world, and there should be justice. He is going to come back to this earth, I believe soon, and rule and reign and set everything right perfectly and fairly as a judge. Yes, of course. But while he has the opportunity, he doesn't, listen, he doesn't get involved in these worldly disputes. Oh boy, let that sit there for a while. We just spent two years of that whole thing. I'll get emails about that one. Shouldn't we get involved in the political process? Yes, no one's saying that. Should you be an informed citizen? research the candidates and pray about it and vote responsibly? Yes! But to hate people in the process is not Christian, folks. It just is not. It's not. Okay, that's my soapbox. But here Jesus says, wait a minute, younger guy. Why do I think it's a younger brother? Because the older brother got double portion of the inheritance. The younger brother got, you know, if... You get it. He got double what the younger guy got. So the younger guy's coming, I think, and saying, Jesus, get involved here and tell him this ain't just. And Jesus says, hold on, that's a worldly thing. I got really much more important things right now to consider, and here's one of them. It's this, that covetousness, which, by the way, is a sin, is a law, is a Ten Commandment, Exodus 20, you need to be aware of. Paul, listen, Paul in the New Testament, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, said nobody was more zealous for the Ten Commandments than the law than he was. He wasn't bragging. He was just being honest. He kept the law. But in, but in his writings, he tells us there's this one sin that he knows he committed all the time. Covetousness. Covetousness. What's covetousness? That desire for more and more. Just set a Nike website in front of a bunch of teenage boys. 
boy, and I'm not picking on the boys, set a, a pen website in front of me, and I'm like, ooh, I love pens. So I'm not picking on them, but just do it. There's this covetousness. I need more. I need 10 shoes. I need 12 shoes. I need 14 shoes. Oh, they're 300 bucks? No problem. Mom, dad, okay, yeah, you need those for basketball, and you need those for Monday, and you need those for Tuesday, and you need those for Wednesday, and you need have an orange outfit? Okay, we'll get you some orange shoes too. It's that thing where you just need a little bit more and a little bit more, and it just doesn't have to be shoes. By the way, there's a tinge of this in there, comparing yourself to other people. Wow, look at that house they have. I got to have it. Man, why do they get that car and I don't? Man, their life has turned out this way. Lord, why is my life turned out this way? Covetousness. And here he's speaking of it in the realm of material things, but there's this tinge of jealousy in there too. For one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things he possesses. You see the first thing uh, that the Lord does here, that the Lord does here, is he's saying the, the reality is you've got your perspective completely messed up, people, and your perspective is you see stuff and you think this is all there is. And if, if you don't think this is all there is, maybe you think in heaven, you've made this stuff more important than that stuff. And when you do that, when you make the worldly things more important than the heavenly things, many things can go wrong. And he tells it to us here in verse 16 to the end of this parable or this story. By the way, in Colossians 3, verse 5, you know what the Bible says we're to do as Christians with covetousness? Along with other things, you know what we're to do with covetousness? put it to death. We're to put to death covetousness in our lives. The same Apostle Paul who struggled with covetousness, who was a very rich dude, a very privileged dude, who surrenders his life to Christ, the rugs pulled out from him. He has nowhere to lay his head, but he didn't care. He said this, he said, whether I have tons of stuff or nothing, I've learned to be content. And that's it. When you're focused on heaven and knowing that that's the most important thing, you don't covet. You're equal at the cross. You don't compare. You're happy for others that have been blessed and been promoted. You aren't uh, uh, jealous. Well, here's what he says. He spoke a parable to them. He spoke a parable to them. And he says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, hey, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Now, time out here. The Bible says it's fine to save, Save your money. Be a good saver. That's prudent. The Bible calls us to do that. Uh, the Bible says uh, we're to be wise stewards with our money. That's fine. That's good. What this is talking about is when you're so enthralled with money that you sacrifice the eternal. In other words, when your possessions possess you, you have a problem, and so do I. If you can let go of anything... Oh, that's the place where the Lord wants you. But if you say to yourself, I can't do without, and you be honest about that, and I'll be honest about that, then your possession has possessed you, and this applies. He says this. He thought within himself, what shall I do? I don't have room to store my crops. So he said, and you say to yourself, well, what's wrong with tearing down and building more? Well, here's what's wrong. 
I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. Is it good to save? Yes. Is it good to be prudent with your money? Sure. Is it good to be responsible with your money? Uh-huh. But here's the thing. I don't know if you know this, and I will say to my soul, listen, he was seeking satisfaction in the inner parts of himself through possessions. That's the problem. I will say to my soul, oh, now I'm going to be okay. I have enough money. I've got a bigger barn. Oh, everything can fit in the house. Everything can fit in the barns. We got it. And you know what? You're going to build that barn. And guess what this guy's going to happen to this guy? In a few months, he's going to want to build bigger. Is it bad to have a house? No, no one's saying that. Is it bad to have a barn? No, nobody's saying that. But when you can't stop and you be honest with yourself, we have problems. When you're satisfying your soul, you know people satisfy their soul through shopping? They get this high through shopping. There's this thing. Or people, you know, collecting or... Uh, souvenirs or whatever, they can all become a problem. And here, he says, if you're desiring these things, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. See, that's what it leads to. Materialism leads to that idea that, oh my gosh, I'm just going to work till I'm 52, and then I'm just going to, man, I'm just going to play golf and drink beer all day. It's going to be awesome. See, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, there's no thought of retirement. You'll never retire. You're always going to be doing the mission that God called you for. And that's this, is to love God and enjoy him forever and to make him big in your life so others can see until he comes again. That's what you'll be doing. You never retire. Maybe God calls you out of your occupation that you're doing, but for your life, you'll never do. And what he's saying here, you're spending all your resources and time on the wrong thing. Is it okay to work? Yes, you should work. Is it okay to save my money? Yes, as we've talked. But when you pour everything into that to fill up your soul, it's going to go bad. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. In other words, why don't you spend more time thinking about Jesus coming back and less time about your Ferrari or your SUV or your pickup truck or your new toy? you got to realize, when you die, those are going to somebody else. <laughs> you say, man, I've accumulated all this stuff. Yeah, well, maybe. But not forever. So God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? <laughs> In other words, if you don't take anything else as your eyes start to glaze over today. No, I'm kidding. Don't, don't remember the, or don't forget this, that you and I should never live without making preparations for eternity. You're going to live eternal somewhere. It's either going to be with the Lord or without the Lord. So you're going to get 70 to 100 years here unless the Lord comes back first. And he's saying, you're preparing for 10 years of wealth and prosperity and retirement when what's coming is eternity, whether you're with me, you're, you're, you've got your treasure misplaced. So what is the thing to do? Don't lay up treasure for yourself and, don't be, or, and be rich towards God. What's that mean? 
How, how do you combat against materialism? Everything we know comes from the Lord. Well, you say, well, man, I'm a doctor and I, I have this fantastic, you know, you don't say this, but you think it. I'm a, I have this fantastic brain and man, look what I've built. And I got this amazing house and the pool out back and the SUV is so cool, man, yes. How do you become rich towards God? No, that's being rich towards yourself. What you say is, oh, Lord, you've blessed me to be able to be a physician. I'm going to glorify you here at the hospital and at home, and the things you give me, Lord, I'll use for your glory, and I won't fake myself, and I won't be a hypocrite. I'll actually ask you to direct me where to put my stuff and what to do and where to concentrate, and, and when I'm at the office being a surgeon or whatever, I'll pray with my patients, and I'll tell my pa- uh, people in my, uh, uh, my, uh, my practice that I'm praying for you, and all this. Lord, you've put me there, so I'll be the best physician for your glory I can be. That's, that's this. You, that means you're storing up treasure and being rich towards God because look down in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, if you treasure other things above the Lord, all your time and energy will be spent there and you'll never think about eternity. But if you treasure Jesus Christ treasure Jesus Christ, all that he's done, your heart's going to go that way. And you're going to pour into the things of the Lord, eternal things that will last. You understand, right? The things that are done outside of faith is a sin. Uh, It's in the Bible, so don't get mad at me. Things that are done outside of faith are not going to go into eternity. They're going to burn. They're wood, hay, and stubble. But the things done for the Lord... Oh, they're going to last into eternity. Why wouldn't you be rich towards God? In fact, the Bible speaks of crowns. Some people really like to shy away from that. Not me, man. You know what I pray? All of you guys get all of the crowns. And gals, all of you people get the the crowns. What do you mean crowns? Well, there's a lot of judgments in the Bible, but for the Christian you're not going to be judged whether you get into heaven or not. You're washed in the blood. God's going to call you up and say, you're, my, you're, you're righteous in my son. Or my son's righteousness has been imputed to you. Praise the Lord. Come on in. But you are going to be judged for what you did while you were here. And what will you be judged on, by the way? Whether you were successful or not? No, the Bible says this. Not whether you were successful Here, say it with me, whether you were faithful. Like Jeremiah, did you get called to a ministry and you didn't see any real fruit, but you know you were called to the ministry? He was faithful. Maybe not successful in the word eyes, but he was faithful. So so here, that leads leads me to another point. What's God calling you to do? What's he asking you to do? Here it is. Just be faithful in it. (laughs) You say, well, pastor, I think, you know, I, I need to be here early and turn on the lights and get all that stuff. Oh, great, man. Sign up and do it. You know, but what happens is a lot of people say, come, and they come one time, or they come two times, and then they don't come anymore. And you're like, well, ee. see, because that's important. You think, well, turning on the lights and getting things ready? No, that's important. <laughs> Trust me. Or whatever the Lord's called you to. Set up the chairs, clean the uh, sanctuary, whatever it is. Just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Be faithful in it. Because if you're faithful in this much, the Lord will give you more. But he can't trust you with more unless you're faithful in the little things. Of course. 
You don't give your kids, you know, the the backhoe when he's six years old and tell him to uh, undo the, the, you know, dig up the backyard. We're going to put in some new plumbing. No, you say, here, here's a, here's a rake. We're going to teach you how to rake first. Here's a little shovel. We'll teach you how to shovel first. Just let's be good at that first. Maybe in a few years we'll get to the backhoe. Because that's Xander's life, his whole life, right? He was trained in that stuff, so good job Sashuras. Well, so lay up treasure for himself and don't be rich for or and be rich towards God. Treasure Jesus, and there your heart will follow. I always think that's backwards. Did I tell you that before? Yeah, I've told you like 50 times. I always think that verse says, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be. It's not that. It's where what you treasure, your heart comes along to. Treasure Jesus. Find out about him. Okay. You say, why would I do that? Because what we talked about at communion, you got a bad case without the Lord, but he's a defense advocate. Okay. Go on to the next thing, stringing pearls. He said to his disciples, listen, can you imagine being the disciple at this time? You're like, well, Jesus, you've ticked off the whole religious establishment. And now I'm publicly declaring and confessing my life to you, and I've been baptized, and we did it publicly, and, uh, you know, people know now who I am. And, you know, I mean, I would do it, I guess, but I don't really want to get sawn in half too much or get thrown off the temple or get my head bashed in with a Fuller's Club, which happened to all of them after the resurrection or, you know, different ones after the resurrection. I don't, I don't know if I really want that to happen. So that's a little nerve-wracking. And, you know, we're always around these throngs of people, and if they wanted to overrun us, they could overrun us. And you're not exactly doing the signs. You keep teaching them a word. And so you're going to send us out, aren't you, Jesus? And so we're going to be in your place. And Jesus says this, I say to you, don't worry about your life. Uh, guess what that word is, worry, that phrase. It's don't get torn apart. <laughs> what does worry do to us? I, I'm just going to tell you from my story a, a time that I was worried. Hopefully you could uh, think of other times. This is just something silly. It's not even that big a deal, and that's why I pick it. I mean, there's some things that are cataclysmic. Uh, a kid gets in an accident or somebody has an illness. That's, that's, that's not this, but I can remember a time when I was really worried and it was really stupid. I almost killed myself. And so I moved to Hawaii and I coached football at the University of Hawaii. And uh, after a few years, they give me a full-time job, which means I got to go recruit. And here's where I recruited. Seattle, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. They gave the Christian the Las Vegas. That's a joke. And so I wanted to do real well my first year in recruiting, man. And so I was up early, uh, late, coffee, driving all around. I had from Glendale, which is near the Rose Bowl, all the way out to Palm Springs. And I visited every school in Los Angeles. And man, I wanted to sign the best recruits and I wanted to do great. And uh, I started to become really, really worried at something really, really stupid. Whether or not that kid was going to choose our school or choose BYU or choose Fresno State or choose Washington. Man, Washington's such a cool school. Man, would they ever come to... And I started to worry about it. And I started to, you know, here I am traveling through Los Angeles, not sleeping, drinking coffee. And I have a red-eye flight one day. Actually, not a red-eye. 
It's the opposite. An early morning flight one day. And so I got myself back to the L.A. airport hotel, and I am worried. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm going through my notes. And all of a sudden, you know what this thing is. It just starts beating out of my chest. I never felt anything like it. And it's starting to be the nighttime now. And I can't calm down. And I don't calm down. And it's just going and going and going. And I try to lay down, and it won't let me lay down. And my ears are pounding, blood pressure, you know, everything, right? And it turns out I'd never sleep the entire night. And then I fly back to Hawaii. And I mean, it's like a panic attack. And it lasts for like two days, a whole day, a day and a half. And it's miserable. And here I am on this plane up in the cabin pressure. And I'm thinking, man, I am toast. And the reason I give you that story is that's not even something important. And I was totally worried about it. You know, I just picked up a whole bunch of uh, secular articles about worry. You know what worry does? When you feel threatened, hormones pour through your body. They want you to respond physically, and your heart races, and your muscles tense, and your breathing becomes rapid, and see, uh, you, you become uh, uh, unable to focus, and there's no clarity of thought. These are from uh, the secular uh, studies. Uh, panic attacks emotionally, so intense you're going to be convinced that you're having a heart attack. Yep, that was me. And your tongue is swollen and choking you. It's uh, intense and unpleasant. You can even have, listen, so, so stress and worry can lead to, you know, dying, death, ulcers, gastro problems, sexual dysfunction. And I tell you that not to be salacious, but what has God done? He said, in the confines of a marriage, this is something beautiful that you two will share. And it can mess with that. And, and it can mess with all kinds of things. And I looked up this one study. It says, why do people worry? I bet this will resonate with you. Hey, man, if I worry, I'll never have a bad surprise. You ever said that to yourself? It's like this thing we're playing that's unchristian. Like, I know it's fate. What is it? Murphy's Law is going to happen. If it can happen, it's going to happen to me. Oh, that's real faithful. But we do it. If I worry, I'll never have a bad surprise. I took this from psychology today. It's safer if I I worry. There's like this superstitious element. Here's one that all of us do. All of us here in the Christian church. If I say I'm worried and I'm worrying for you, it'll show how pious and how caring I am. Oh, man, I'm worried about Gertrude. Mm, Really, it's kind of a way to show how amazing you are about remembering all the people in the church and then to gossip about Gertrude's problem. I show I care by worrying. It motivates me. If I worry, I won't become complacent or unproductive. This is what people say. And worrying helps me find problems or fight problems and solve problems when in reality, worry doesn't do any of that. Worry kills. And Jesus said, I say to you, don't worry about your life, verse 22. In other words, don't let worry pull your life apart. That's the word he's using here. What you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. You see, worry is destructive. It can tear you down and tear you apart and kill you. And we know that from the studies. But remember, you should remember when you get to that place in the LAX airport hotel or wherever, maybe something more important than that, 
you have the wrong focus. You're focusing on this thing right in front of you when reality really is what's happening in eternity. There's nothing wrong with being a football coach and trying to get the best recruits, but if you make it your idol, if you make it the most important thing so that other people will recognize you and you could be the Frank Broyles, assistant coach of the year. Yeah, that's sick. I know it, right? So, right? And all that stuff, if you worry about that and, and you're not doing it to glorify the Lord, you got a problem <laughs> and it's inappropriate. Listen, what do you do to combat it? You understand that life is eternal. You set your mind on things above. You have a right perspective of your work, of the people around you, and what God is doing. You get that? That's number one. What else do you do? You understand that ravens don't have these storehouses. They don't sow or reap, and yet God feeds them. And he's going from the lesser to the bigger. And the lesser to the bigger is, if he loves ravens, he loves you. He thinks of you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows when you lie down and when you arise. That's what the Bible tells you. God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds. And which of you, see, this all goes along with that study I just read you from a secular magazine. God put it in his word first. Which of you thinks you can improve something? That's what he's saying. Can add one cubit to your stature. You can improve something. It distorts your perspective about what life is and, and what you can do. If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, folks, how they grow. I even take care of lilies and flowers. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Get that right perspective. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And don't you see what you should eat or what you should drink nor have an anxious mind? Don't, or excuse me, don't seek what you should eat or what you should drink. Not, not that you shouldn't eat or drink, but don't worry about the material. Because if you do, you're going to have an unbelievable, anxious mind. And that phrase is doubtful. You catching this? To be held in suspense, like a ship tossed in a storm, just suspended there. And you can't, you know, you're just being tossed by the waves. That's what the anxious word there means. It's if you're worrying about the wrong things, you're just, you feel like you're suspended and you don't know where to go. You got it? For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then he says, uh, don't fear, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Man, many of us right here today, we need to hear that. You think God's a reluctant giver. You, you say stuff like, well, come on, the God of the Old Testament's different than the God of the New Testament. Well, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and... tells us that his kingdom is full of righteousness, peace, and joy. You can look it up. Sell what you have and give alms. Does it mean that you have to sell what you have and give alms to be accepted into heaven? No, what he's saying here is, 
you got a problem with materialism. And when a sign that you don't have a problem with materialism is when you give joyfully to the poor. Provide yourselves money bags which don't grow old, a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroyed. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also. You can even treasure your life so much that you're petrified of dying. <laughs> you can be a Christian and be petrified of dying. I heard of this one story. It's a famous story. Uh, I'll tell it a little bit wrong, but I'll tell it a little bit right, so hopefully I get it going here. And the story is this. There's two business partners making lots of money, and one business partner gets radically saved, comes to know the Lord, and moves out and goes into full-time, full-time ministry and just serves the Lord, two men. And um, one day, uh, the daughter, or both guys get sick and are in the hospital, and the daughter of the one who's died, who stayed in business and made money his idol, goes and visits the other one on the deathbed, uh, the one who'd given his life to Christ and served out his life for Christ, and she's visiting with him there, and she says, how, how can you be so joyful, calm, cool, collected, peaceful here when you know physically you're about ready to die? <laughs> he said, and she said, because my dad's not peaceful. And he gets there, and uh, thanks, buddy. And he, here, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. He gets there, and, uh, or she gets there and uh, says this, my dad's not peaceful, you're peaceful. And, and the guy in the bed who's the Christian said, here's the reason, uh, because I'm going to my treasure. Your dad's leaving it behind. <laughs> there we go. But he's going to his treasure. The other was leaving it behind. Isn't that a powerful story? Well, he says, let your waist be girded. In other words, get ready to work and your lamps burning and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, that they may come to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. So listen, listen to this. How do you set your mind on things above and not be so concerned in the inappropriate way with material things? I was just talking about this with somebody on Friday. Is the Lord coming back soon? Uh-huh. He's coming back soon. And the church is to be watching. In other words, not surprised. He's coming back. He's coming back and he's going to establish everything right. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. It's interesting because in this case, the master's coming back and the master's serving the servants, just for your information. But he's coming back. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. Uh, 
So listen, here at this church, we believe in the rapture. We believe there's no prophecy left to be fulfilled that at any time the Lord could come back in the clouds and pull up his church. And then there'll be a seven-year period of tribulation. And at the end of that, he's going to come back to rule and reign at this earth with his army. That's Revelation 19. You're his army. Riding on a white horse. It says it in Revelation 19. Don't take my word for it. And he's coming back. And there is an imminence about that rapture. And you better, and I better, and we better be ready. Why do you think I get so revved up up here and you get so revved up when you want to talk and share the gospel? It's because you want to tell people in love what's coming. And then Peter said to him, Lord, you speak this parable only to us or to all people. (laughs) So funny. And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in uh, due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when it comes. What else should you do? What else should you do to combat materialism and hypocrisy and all that? Set your mind on things above by watching, expecting Jesus to come back. That's one. What's the second thing? Work. Whatever it is, are you an accountant? Okay, work is under the Lord at your job. We need accountants who love the Lord. Whatever it is, are you a person at school? Love the Lord at your school. Be, be one who's working, sharing, loving, praying for people, being friends with them, cheering them up, exhorting them. That's working. Do that. Truly I say to you, verse 44, he's going to be made ruler over all he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying, or is, uh, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. It's just a way of saying he gets so consumed with the things of the world and doesn't pay attention to the eternal. Listen, listen, I'm saying this, it's fatal. It's fatal. Don't think that the Lord's delaying. The church has always been marked by this sense that his return is imminent. And it's always been filled with the Holy Spirit and zealous for the Lord when they're watching and waiting for the Lord's return. Come on, church, let's be that. So when he's not looking for him, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and an hour when he's not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not... Uh, he who did not know yet command, uh, committed things deserving of strife shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. You're always responsible for what you know and what God's given you to be a steward over. You say, well, my goodness, that guy's ministry is way bigger than mine. His, look at his youth group, man. What are we doing over here? Are you, you know, people say stuff like this, folks. And the Lord says, hold on, man. I've just committed these people to you, or I've committed this job. Just be faithful in this. Start with the toy shovel. Someday we'll get to the backo. I came to, verse 9, send the fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. By the way, this is all Jesus' words here. Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. What's that? His suffering and death. He's being immersed in that, totally immersed. It's totally, he's going to give it his all. And how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. 
From now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You read that at first blush and you go, what? Does that mean I have to not talk to my mom if she's not a... No, that's not it. What it is is when the gospel is presented to people, whether it be in families or whatever, some people are going to say, yes, Lord, and some aren't. And it's going to cause a division in terms of, oh, yeah, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, especially back then as they were leaving out of the Jewish faith. And others would be saying, what do you mean you're leaving? You're not going to get circumcised? You're not going to uh, pay attention to the Levitical laws? What, 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 what? And they cause a big division. And Jesus said, just be prepared for that, disciples. Then he also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is. And he goes, you hypocrites. In other words, he's not really slamming them. What he's saying is, you're wearing this mask. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? How many of you have on here the weather app? Yeah, I do too. I got the weather app. There are some people who know so much about the weather, you're just astounded. You're like, well, at 4.14, it's going to, you know, three raindrops are going to come down in West Elizabeth, and then, but, but 75 will be going on in El Rama, and then, but yeah, right? And what Jesus is saying here is not bad to f- find the weather, but what he's saying is you give your uh, thought and time and energy to such trivial earthly things, and you can't even discern the times of Jesus and whether he's going to come back or not. Why? Because you never paid attention. This is one of the great warnings of the Bible. It's not bad to have the weather app unless it's distracting you for the more important thing of knowing Jesus Christ and who he is. I always say it like this. It doesn't resonate with you because you don't love pens like I do. But you know what? Before this COVID thing, I love to go to coffee shops and stuff. And I love to get out my pen and a cool journal and your Bible and just have some free time and just go there and study the Bible and just do my thing and that nice pen. And then, you know, the, the cafes are full and you just see that one, one in the back, the table, and you're like, yes, there's a table back there. And you, and you go there and, uh, you know, you, you got your books and you plop down and you put your books on there and the thing is going like this. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you just, you're like, oh, and you get down on your knees and you stuff some paper under there, but that doesn't work. It's so bad. And you're like, can't you folks just screw in the thing a little bit or fix this in some way? And now you know why nobody went and sat at the table and the rest of them are full. And, you know, being a pampered American, I can't really enjoy my time, right? You know what? When we think about things that are earthly, we become unstable like that table. We're just wobbly. Nothing to support. We can't support. We can't. We're fickle. One day we can hold the books. Next day we can't. One day we can have a conversation at the table. Next day it's shot out and you can't do anything. It's not faithful and it's not consistent. And there's no zeal zeal there and there's no dependability. And that's what we're like when we're not living in the will of God like Jesus has taught us here. And that's what he's saying. You, you think about all the other things, pens and weather and 
journals. Did you wake up this morning and say, you know, Jesus could come back today, and I know it's true, and live your life accordingly. If Jesus would come back today, what would you do at 1 o'clock? What would you do? You'd go and you'd call all your relatives and you'd say, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. I'm praying for you. I love you. Will you surrender your life to Christ? And Jesus said, live every day like that. Last thing. I gave it away at the beginning. Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, Make every effort along the way to settle with him. You know what? You know what lawyers know? They can kind of gauge whether a case is good or not. That's why there's, I forget the rate, maybe some of the other lawyers in here would know, but it's in the 90% that cases in Allegheny, is it 90%? It's like 93% cases in Allegheny County settle before trial. Because the lawyers kind of know how the judge is going to rule, what the case law says, what the statute says. They just kind of know, and they know when they have a bad case. And you know what's really frustrating or scary? There's a good word. You know what's really scary? When you're telling your client you're going to lose, you're saying it behind closed doors, and you're saying, you know, you're going to lose on this. You need to really settle the case. And he says, or she says back to you, we're going to trial. And you say, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You're about ready to get taken to the cleaners, or you're about ready to go to the hooskow or something, right? And you know it's coming, and it's stressful, because you want to do your best, but they want to go to the magistrate. They want to go to the judge. They want to have their day in court, and you're saying, you don't want your day in court. That's stressful, man. You hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus knew better than us, the lawyers. Jesus said, you know, if you have a bad case, do this. Settle it early. That's what he's saying here. You, you got a bad case. Settle it. I tell you, you shall not depart from here until you've paid the very last mite. In civil law, you're going to, in other words, you're going to lose your shirt and your business and your vehicles and all your insurance money. You're going to get taken to the cleaners. That's what they're saying. That's what he's saying right here. And he's talking about spiritually. And we set it there. Jesus tells us, what should we be focused on? Well, here's the thing. That Jesus Christ is our advocate. He stands with us in the courtroom of heaven. What's really funny about it is, he came down from the bench, so to speak, from heaven, as judge, or he's going to come as judge, but, but now he's our defense counsel. And what he says is to the judge, yeah, he's guilty, but... I, you, you penalize me. You, you know what no lawyer in the world would say? If the judge brightens the gavel down and says, okay, uh, Jan, you're guilty, you know what no lawyer in the, in the world would say? Jan, hey, I'll take the penalty for you. <laughs> nah. You're going home to play with your kids. She's going to pay the freight or go to jail. Jesus says, He's not going anywhere. I paid it all. He's not only the advocate. He's the actual sacrifice. The one where the wrath of God was poured out. 
He's the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the perfect sacrifice. And then he's also our great high priest. What does a priest do? He takes the hand of man. Everybody makes fun of me of this because I always do it. In the hand of God and brings them together. But Jesus is the great high priest. He's in heaven now interceding for you. He's not saying, oh, Tim messed up today. God, we need to correct this. He's saying, Tim is accepted up here by the blood that I poured out. Tim has access here now, God. That's his intercession. That's what the Bible tells us. But here's the problem as we wind up, if it's a problem. You have to receive that. You can't just say, I go to church. You can't just say, I give money. You can't just say, I serve on committee. You can't say, I set up the chairs. You must receive the Lord Jesus Christ. If you received, you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died, was raised from the dead, and lives eternally, he can come and live in your heart, and he'll pay for your sins and the power over your sins, but you must say it or receive it. When you do receive it, the Holy Spirit comes into your life immediately. The Bible tells us that. And now you're sealed into heaven. So I'm not sure, because I've gone over here, if they're going to sing. If they are, they're going to lead us in worship. Come up now. Yes, they are. How about that? And what I'm going to say is bow your heads and hearts. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, hear while I pray with you, you say to the Lord, Lord, I'm a sinner. I want you to come into my life and be my advocate. So pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And thank you, Lord, that your word is so powerful. Lord, if this is you, Say this to him, Lord, I don't want to have a bad case before you. I want to settle it early. And I want to settle it now, Lord. And so, Lord, I'm praying that you would come into my life and be the Lord of my life and my Savior, that I'm going to trust in your finished work and resurrection for my salvation and my new life. Lord, help us to grow and to adjust our perspectives when they get out of whack. Help us to have your mind, the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.